Hello, hello, hello. This is the Vanilla JavaScript Podcast. I'm Chris Ferdinandi. Thanks so much for joining me. Today, I'm talking about CSS in JS, why I think it's bad for the web, and how to address some of the legitimate problems that it's trying to solve. Um, so uh, at the time that I'm recording this, uh, yesterday, the wonderful Remy Sharp had tweeted out, I keep looking at CSS and JS, styled components, etc. And the one thing they keep seeming to lack is why. And no, CSS is hard, stressful, etc. isn't why, because those all apply to JS too. Um, and this is something I've been feeling for a while too. I just don't really get why people want to use CSS and JS so badly. Um, so I waited on the discussion, which unleashed a torrent of replies and my mentions. But the three common threads that seem to keep coming up over and over again were one, uh, that global namespacing in CSS sucks, that two, it's really hard to remove unused code down the road, and uh, three, just this concept of kind of components and modular stuff. And today I wanted to talk about why I think CSS and JS is bad for the web and how to address some of those concerns because they are um, legitimate problems. So um, Christopher Shadu, uh, whose name I certainly just butchered, even though looking up how to pronounce it before the show, and I'm really sorry, uh, is a front-end developer at Facebook. He's part of the React team, uh, and he helped bring the absolutely amazing um, JavaScript formatter prettier into the mainstream. He's really good at JavaScript. He, he absolutely knows his shit. He's also the creator of the CSS and JS movement. And someone shared his presentation on why you'd want to use CSS and JavaScript with me. Um, and in this talk, uh, which I'll include in the show notes below, um, he, um, he mentions seven problems for CSS at scale. Uh, the global namespace, which we already talked about a little bit, um, managing dependencies, dead code elimination, minification, sharing constants between CSS and JavaScript, um, non-deterministic resolution, which is really just a fancy way of talking about um, the cascade and how it kind of has this last last thing takes precedence um, structure to it. And then uh, isolation, which uh, I think kind of relates to the global namespace. Um, I really, this is not supposed to be a mudslinging thing. Um, I am going to pick apart his arguments a little bit in today's podcast. Um not because I have a problem with him personally or don't like his work. I just, I, for CSS and JS, I just don't think is the right approach here. And so I want to be really, really clear that this is not, I'm, I'm not trying to pick on anybody's work because I know he's put a lot of time into this and he does really amazing things and gives back a lot to the community. Um, but I also think it's important for us to be critical of each other's work. Um, and so with that in mind, if you think that I've misrepresented CSS and JS in any way or missed something, um, feel free to kind of send me a note and let me know. We can talk about it in another episode. Um, I'm not going to tackle all seven of those things. I am going to focus on the ones that I keep hearing about the most often. Um, uh, if uh, you're worried this podcast is going to be too long, you don't want to listen to the whole thing. Um, the short version is that the general vibe I get from both Christopher's presentation and the people I've talked about this with on Twitter is that this JavaScript is awesome and CSS sucks. So let's make CSS more like JS. Um, no one's overtly said that to me, but that's always kind of the underlying vibe. Um, and I, I have no doubt these people know how to write CSS. I just don't think they really get CSS as a language. Um, not that they're dumb or they don't understand it. Um, just that like there's a, 
there's a vibe about CSS that makes it just fundamentally different as a language. Like it is structurally different on purpose from JavaScript. And that is a good thing. The thing that many JS developers hate about CSS are the same things that make it so powerful. And that's what I really want to explore in today's episode. So let's start with the global namespace. Um, in Christopher's presentation, he says, it is really crazy to me that best practices in CSS are still to use global variables. We learned in JS for a long time that globals are bad, yet we still use global variables everywhere in CSS. And uh, you know, I think the important thing here to remember is that CSS is not a programming language in the same way that JavaScript is. And you can't think about it in the same terms that you would use to think about, say, something like JavaScript variables and the possible collisions that can happen there. Um, the global namespace is a feature, it's not a bug. And I know this sounds a little like, oh, I've been, I've been too kind of brainwashed by, by CSS, but like I mean this. The cascade is a feature, not a bug. These two features allow you to write less code and create files that are a lot smaller and more performant if you know how to take advantage of them. Um, and if you come from a space of, uh, you know, maybe more traditional programming language or JavaScript where you've got, um, you know, all these kind of scoped components, it's easy to think about CSS in the same terms, but you, but you shouldn't. Um, and my favorite way to handle things like this is by using Nicole Sullivan's object-oriented CSS technique. So for example, let's say I had some styles for my headings. Um, I wanted them all bold, and then I had some style or some size, uh, font size um, properties for my H1 through H6 elements. And I occasionally have hero sections and other callouts where I want to use bigger, bolder headings in those sections. So I could do something like have... Um, uh, dot callout h1 and dot out hero h1 um, scoped with a different font size. Um, and that's great if I have h1 elements in those headings and I want to make them bigger. But what happens if uh, the callout happens further down the page where I shouldn't be using an h1? For semantic reasons, I should be using an h2 through h6. Now I need styles for those various use cases. So I could do something like dot callout h1 comma dot callout h2 comma dot callout h3 etc and adjust the font sizes that way but that's madness and you can see how your your css file can balloon pretty quickly or i could just use a simple utility class something like dot hero dash text for um my hero text or my hero heading and assign the font size there and because classes have more specificity than elements the hero text class is going to take priority and the font size will be the bigger size when I use it in those sections. When I switched over from a component-based styling approach to a utility class first one, um, I reduced my style sheet size by more than half. Um, Christopher goes on to point out that Bootstrap, for example, introduces a, a whopping 600 global variables. And I think Bootstrap abuses the hell out of specificity. Um, they have way more going on than the average developer needs in a project. But, you know, beyond that, I don't think this stat in and of itself, if I knew nothing else about Bootstrap, this stat in and of itself doesn't inherently tell me if that's a good thing or a bad thing. 600 small utility classes for little nudges and tweaks within the DOM could result in a super lean, super performance style sheet if done right. Um, you could theoretically have a style sheet that is almost entirely utility classes and build a really engaging user interface 
on top of that um, without the need for many components. Uh, so switching gears just a little bit, um, the next item that Christopher touched on was dependencies. And uh, he mentions we're past, uh, excuse me, we're past the way where we bundle our CSS into a single file and now have to split it into many files and therefore deal with dependencies. To which I say, why? Um, I'm going to speculate here that the style sheet that, or the style sheets that he works with are huge, and it's a performance issue to load them all at once. Um, he's a developer at Facebook. Um, if you're, you know, if you ever dug around into their style sheet, it's, it's I believe it's pretty large. Um, they have a lot going on there, a lot of different components and modules and so on. Here's the thing, though. If you embrace the cascade and embrace global namespacing, you can dramatically reduce your style sheet size. Um, sometimes larger style sheets are avoidable, but a lot of the stuff um, that you have in a site tends to get reused over and over again, and people are just redeclaring the same properties for different components over and over again. Whereas, you know, utility classes and... Um, more abstracted modules can really help do away with a lot of that, um, make the whole thing easier and more performant. If you do have a, a, a necessarily larger style sheet, though, um, you can use things like inlining your critical path CSS and then asynchronously loading the rest of your style sheet um, down the road so that you're not render blocking with a giant style sheet. You can also automate what goes into that file and use some build tool plugins um, to kind of handle all that for you. And with one style sheet to load, you no longer have to worry about dependency management. Um, of course, working with modular files can also be more convenient for developers, and I totally get that. And we already have tools to handle that too. SAS makes that super easy. You don't even have to use any of its features. If you just want modular CSS files, you can rename all your .css files to .scss, it's fully valid SAS, and you can go from there. Um, in fact, I started out using SAS for myself just for the modularity, and then eventually kind of started using some of the other features that it offers. Smaller modular files can be a real performance boost on newer browsers and devices that support HTTP2. But for older browsers and devices, and these are the ones that really need every ounce of performance they can get, it's actually worse for performance to do this. Um, so the kind of the modular dependency loading thing, um, not necessarily a good thing. Let's talk about dead code elimination because this one came up quite a bit too, especially on Twitter. Um, so what happens when you have code that's no longer used? This is a real problem um, and it's, it's probably the number one, one of the number one arguments I see in defense of CSS and JS. Um, but using CSS and JavaScript for this is throwing technology at what I think is fundamentally a people problem. You remove a component from your JS or your markup, right? You need to remove that from the CSS too. And like, yes, technology can make it harder or impossible for you to forget, but it's not like that doesn't come with some other side effects and trade-offs too. Um, and if you're working with utility classes, that may not even be necessary. Like you remove a component and from the, the, the markup and then those utility classes, which are used for other things, just continue to go on. You don't need to go like find anything and, and pull it out of there. If you use an approach like BEM, you can remove that one component from your styles, just like you would in JavaScript. You just have two places to go instead of one. I don't, I don't think that's a huge deal. Um, working with modular SAS files makes this even easier. You can just comment out the import for that file. 
Minification is another one <clears throat> that uh, Christopher mentioned. Uh, he says, one side benefit that we can minify all class names and send both the JS and CSS a bit faster to users. This also ensures that all the developers are using CX, which is Facebook's tool for this, since they cannot guess that name. Uh, the approach that he recommends uh, actually results in class names like dot underscore F8Z. I know he thinks this is a good thing but because it forces people to use a build tool, but from my perspective, it creates a higher bar for beginners to get started and makes debugging a hell of a lot harder. Now you have to hunt for obscure class names that don't match what you wrote. The amount of file savings, particularly after gzipping, is trivial. You should still minify your CSS, but that doesn't mean reducing class names to absurd random strings that mean nothing either. Like pulling out white space and comments makes a huge difference. And like, yeah, we do that in JavaScript. We we reduce everything down to these these tiny variable names. But CSS doesn't have the same parse and render weight that JavaScript does. The performance implications are totally different. So I have a whole lot more to say on this topic, but I want to keep this episode short because they generally are. Um, today, I really focused on exploring some of the key points from Christopher's presentation and where he and I differ in our thinking about front-end engineering. He's an amazing developer with some really clever approaches to things, and I hope this is viewed more as two passionate professionals disagreeing than any sort of personal attack on him or anything. Um, I think it's clear he and I both have a deep love for the web. Um, in a future episode, I'm going to try and share some additional thoughts around CSS and JS more generally, and maybe more clearly summarize my preferred approach for building for the web. And of course, if you think I missed the mark here in any way, or you know, there's something you want to hear me talk about that I didn't cover in today's episode, please let me know. That's it for today. If you want to master JavaScript this year, head over to gomakethings.com where you can sign up to get daily developer tips sent straight to your inbox every weekday. I also have a bunch of other resources for learning JavaScript there too, including my brand new Vanilla JS Academy training program for beginners that kicks off on May 14th and you do not want to miss it. It's going to be super kick-ass. I hope to see you there. Um, I will see you next time. Cheers.